0: Have you ever wondered if we are alone in the universe? Is there any scientific evidence showing that an intelligent designer created the heavens and the earth? Welcome to Darwin or Design on Tampa Bay's Christian Talk AM 570 and 910. You may have heard about the debate over intelligent design and Darwinism. Find out what the evidence says about the origin of life and mankind and just what the experts are saying. Darwin or Design brought to you by the C.S. Lewis Society. Now your host, the author of Doubts About Darwin and Darwin Strikes Back, the research professor of Bible and theology at Trinity College in Trinity, Florida, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome to
1: Darwin or Design, the program that tackles each week the head-on, the information coming out of the dialogue or the debate between the world of science and the world of philosophy and theology and specifically Christian belief. And so it's a privilege to welcome you if this is your first time to come alongside and listen along. Uh, I am Tom Woodward, your weekly host. I'm delighted to present the case for design and the case, the growing case from the world of scientific evidence that has been building and mounting through the last several decades against the Darwinian, Neo-Darwinian theory of evolution that says that uh, the complexity and the diversity of life forms have developed through a long process of mindless a step-by-step change to produce the amazing world we have around us today. So it's uh, we also want to thank our host and sponsor. The uh, C.S. Lewis Society has been sponsoring for the last year and a half. And I might even add my kudos and hats off to Bill Carl, our technical producer, across the table from me here at the Salem Tampa Station. We do have an extraordinary guest on the other end of the line. He is a Ph.D. graduate in philosophy, uh, specializing, I think, in the area of mathematics, but we'll get uh, down to the details of that, uh, who is, like I say, a Ph.D. in philosophy grad from Princeton, my alma mater, but he is also an accomplished—he's um, a, he's a Renaissance man. He's done so many things, written very, very important books on the history of mathematics. He has uh, just come out with a new book called The Devil's Delusion. Something I would think of a response to uh, Dawkins, Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, but it goes beyond that into a a whole range of uh, considerations – but we want to welcome uh, to the other end of our line, out in, uh, I believe it's uh, Washington State. Is that right, Dr. Berlinski? For today, yeah. For today. And as you rove uh, from here and there in a tour of cities in the United States, I gather. Uh, you are a, a professor, or have been in many different locations, both in the U.S. and overseas, a professor of mathematics primarily, or philosophy. Which Both, one? both really. really. Okay.
2: Take whatever I can get. <laughs>
1: Well, you know, Dr. Berlinski, of course, I'm tempted to call you David because we've known each other for a number of years. Uh, We first met at the Biola Conference, which really in 1996, November of 96, out in L.A. helped to hammer out some of the broad outlines of the new emerging paradigm. Uh, the approach of intelligent design, detecting design in physical systems, but uh, if you could just share a little bit about your personal background. I mean, how you got interested in the issue of metaphysics, the possibility of the uh, showing the nonexistence of God, or even the plausibility of that there may be. Uh, some, some higher power, and then how you got interested in the physical side of it, the, the scientific side of things.
3: Well, the, my interest in the physical sciences, and especially mathematics, is uh, long-standing. I mean, after all, oh, God, I graduated from Princeton in 1965. That was a very long time ago. And I immediately switched my interests from philosophy, which were considerable at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I like to think they, well, perhaps it's an exaggeration, I like to think they were serious. And uh, I switched my interest from philosophy to mathematics, especially mathematical logic. Mm-hmm. And I I really stayed committed to these fields for a long time. I taught mathematics at half a dozen different universities. I taught it over in France. And I became very, very deeply interested in certain kinds of questions, which are no longer I think uh, of anything but historical or autobiographical interest. And... uh, it was only after I published A Tour of the Calculus in 1996 and decided to, to really commit myself to writing about the things that interested me mm. that very gradually I developed an interest in the kind of issues that are being discussed in my book, uh, The Devil's Delusion, Atheism, and Scientific Pretensions. And I'm, I'm not going to argue that these are very long-standing interv- interests. Late in life, I came to them. Mm-hmm. And that's
1: published by Crown...
3: Crown Forum, Random, Forum. Random Forum. House Crown Forum.
1: Very good. Well, I just received my copy within the last three hours. Uh,
3: Not surprising. It hasn't reached the bookstores <laughs> yet. Yeah. Well,
1: that's around. great. It's The FedEx brought it faithfully as I was going into my class uh, on, on yeah. C.S. Lewis this morning. Uh, tell me, uh, just to back up just a little bit, you did your original work, of course, in uh, Ph.D. in uh, Princeton and Princeton philosophy. I think you knew Walter Kaufman. Yeah, he was even instrumental in you somehow getting into that department. Uh,
3: well, uh, I, Walter. Kaufman and I met before I came to Princeton, and we talked, and I think at the time, don't forget, he was very interested, completely occupied with continental philosophy. Mm-hmm. And at the time, we discussed continental philosophy, and uh, he asked me very politely, would I be interested in continental philosophy? And at the time, since I knew nothing about it, I said, sure. I don't know whether this was uh, decisively uh, of, of decisive interest in my gaining admission to the department. Mm. Uh, that, that's a little unclear to me, because... Well, the fact of the matter is, it was a long, long time ago.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: So well, I, I get I, to the department
1: <laughs> right when I was there in '68 through '72. I actually took his course, Hegel, Nietzsche, and Existentialism, and uh, he was, of course, one of the world's leading authorities, especially on Nietzsche, and I guess the other two topics as well. And himself, uh, both uh, of Jewish descent, but atheist in belief. But he had the high regard for the Old Testament prophets. I remember reading, you know, his, his, um, his, his feeling, his passion of some sense of a higher morality reflected in those prophets. I always thought it was kind of in discord with his own...
3: Um, with his own department. His own department. You're so right. Uh, uh, Walter Kaufman, he was an interesting and a valuable member of the department. There's mm-hmm. no question about that. But in some respects, he was an anachronistic. He looked back, or he participated in memory Mm -hmm. in in a particular kind of scholarly tradition, Mm -hmm. which was completely inaccessible to the men running the department Mm -hmm. at the time. They had no interest in it. They, They certainly didn't want to master the languages involved, German or French. And they were very reluctant to give it any credibility. Uh, so uh, Kauffman was appreciative for what he represented, the sole representative in the department of that tradition. But he was not an active member. He was not a, a significant right. voice. During my time there, this may have all changed after I left.
1: Right. But of course, you know, when you emerge from that experience in philosophy and you turn toward mathematics and your, your book, Tour of the Calculus, I believe won a national award. Um, But you have then since uh, written a number of articles, I believe, in various and sundry uh, com- uh, places, including commentary yeah. on the on the Darwin issue, wasn't that your first big? Yeah,
3: piece? it was the second piece I did in commentary. The first was called "The Soul of Man Under Physics." It was uh, okay, quite a different piece. But the, the deniable Darwin was the piece I published in 1996, and that was the piece that really mm-hmm. uh, created an enormous uproar, mm-hmm. just an enormous amount of controversy.
1: Well, you seem to be uh, maybe creating uproars in different locations. Uh, one of the uproars that's going to be this uh, as the uh, program that we're uh, taping just right before it airs is is uh, coming out the new movie Expelled No Intelligence Allowed Featuring Ben Stein is also featuring our own David Berlinski on the phone with us. Very, very small amount. Small amount, but I and I enjoy the pose that in your chair at your department. I, my wife and I thought it was so cool the way you are, are able to recline and then at the same time uh, deal a, a fairly good critical comment or present a critical comment on Darwin Darwinian macroevolutionary theory. Tell us a little bit about your skepticism of that theory.
3: You mean as it was reflected in as the, it in was my reflected there, reclining or- arms? Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, my skepticism, I have to say in my own defense, is really of long standing. It began at Princeton, of all places. (laughs) I was at the time rooming with a very, very sharp philosopher, and he made one effort after the other to explain Darwin's theory to my satisfaction and to his. And we discovered, oh, after a couple of months of discussion, that the theory was largely opposed, um, that uh, when, when, you, when you peeled away the carapace and you got to the theory itself, there was virtually nothing there. And I, you know, I left Princeton, I said, "Huh, oh, no, that's odd, because everyone seems to believe in Darwin's theory of evolution, it seems absolutely as well established as any other part of science, how could it be that I can't understand it? And I understood a lot of difficult things at the time, with a great deal of effort, of course, but I simply could not figure out what was going on in Darwin's theory because it seemed to me strikingly empty. No no real scientific content. Hmm. And the next person I talked to was Noam Chomsky at MIT. I interviewed him for the New York Times, and he said he shared my skepticism at the time. He's since backtracked a little bit. He told me to go see Marco Schutzenberger, a mathematician in Paris, and I did. And Marco and I really... um, found that we had an absolute concordance of uh, opinion with respect Mm. to Darwin's theory. He was infinitely more skeptical and Mm. derisive than I was, and I learned to to be much more like him in my attitudes, hmm. And that was the crucial influence. Marco really, and not only me, I think he opened a lot of eyes.
1: And Marco Schutzenberger, of course, a member of the French Academy of Sciences. Oh yeah, he's
3: a terrific mathematician. Yeah.
1: Excellent uh, mathematician. A, a mathematician and medical degree, I believe, as well. He was
3: originally a physician, yeah. Mm-hmm. And a world expert on yaws.
1: <laughs> now, wasn't Schutzenberger a member of the, uh, the notorious Wistar Institute? Oh, sure. Yeah.
3: Murray Eden and Schutzenberger were both there, and they both contributed what I think are, uh, think of as the historically important papers. papers.
1: I just interviewed, uh, or I, I didn't really interview. I chatted with Murray Eden last week on the phone, and he and I are going to try to get together for an interview in the next month or so. And he says my my comments all along have been that uh, neo Darwinism is just plain sloppy. It's not. It's I agree. Not, it's not rigorous. I now, agree. Now, what what do you, what do you see happening in the next couple months or years down the road? Is are we reaching a critical point where <clears throat> the, the lack of rigor in neo Darwinism is becoming known more widely?
3: Well. If I could offer one small correction, when you, when, you, when you use a phrase like the lack of rigor, it sounds as if you're applying to Neo-Darwinian theory the standards of pure mathematics. That's not the case, and I don't think Murray Eaton means it that way. Right. We're using ordinarily, uh, ordinary scientific standards of rigor, ordinary degrees of plausibility and coherence and consistency. Mm-hmm. Nothing very exceptional. The same standards uh, you might apply in chemistry or in physics. Mm-hmm. And it's to that extent that uh, Neo-Darwinism, I think, is, is very, very deficient. Uh, what's going to happen in the next four or five months, four or five years? It's very hard to say. I think everyone who is engaged in a critical assessment of Darwin's theory has been stunned by the extraordinary nature of the counterreaction. Uh, it's foolish on our part. We should have expected it, but I don't think anyone really did. Mm. And the counterreaction, contre force majeure, if you will, the counterreaction has not been really a scientific counterreaction, not largely a scientific counterreaction, although there have been some very perceptive crit- criticisms offered, it has been an ideological counter-reaction. In no, other words, coming from the Darwin side. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Coming from the Darwin side, the reaction has been overwhelmingly, I would say, ideological, mm-hmm. and not uh, critical or analytic, although mm-hmm. I have to say that some very good pieces have appeared, mm-hmm. very critical pieces, right. including my own. I, I, I have participated right. in the criticisms. I have uh, argued that intelligent design has certain deficiencies that mm-hmm. need to be addressed.
1: And you're listening to Darwin or Design. I'm Tom Woodward talking to David Berlinski, uh, the author of the new book, The Devil's Delusion. And one of the key figures in a movie coming out uh, this very weekend, which is called Expelled. No intelligence allowed. And the best in our interview with uh, Dr. Berlinski is yet to come. Stay tuned.
0: Welcome back to Darwin or Design on Tampa Bay's Christian Talk, AM 570 and 910 WTBN. Once again, here's the host of Darwin or Design, Dr. Tom Woodward.
1: Welcome back to Darwin or Design. We have an exciting conversation going with uh, David Berlinski. Dr. David Berlinski is the author of a new book, The Devil's Delusion, and it's subtitled Atheism and Its Scientific Pretensions. Uh, Dr. Berlinsky out there in California, actually, I guess, Northwest and uh, in Seattle the yeah. Seattle area. If you could just take us on a quick tour of some of your major insights, discoveries. Uh, points of view that you're really emphasizing in The Devil's Delusion. Just uh, give us a little kind of mini-seminar if you could.
3: Well, I think I think my my motivation for writing The Devil's Delusion after spending a whole long time in mathematics and physics and the sciences and biology mm-hmm. is to correct the widespread misapprehension that the sciences offer us a coherent, intelligible, consistent worldview <laughs> that makes any creedal commitment simply impossible. That's what really... And I hesitate to use this word, but it's accurate. That's what infuriated me after reading Dawkins and Hitchens and Daniel Dennett and all the rest of them. The idea that science speaks with a uniform voice and it has a single message, which I think is impossible to sustain mm-hmm. if anyone has spent any time seriously examining the sciences. It's just an impossible point of view. Mm-hmm. And I regret to say that some very distinguished physicists whom I admire intensely, like Stephen Weinberg, has participated in this. Mm-hmm. And all I can say about this is he certainly knows better. Mm-hmm. He certainly knows better.
1: Well, let me just read a couple from the flyleaf on the front flyleaf, at least. Uh, Has anyone provided a proof of God's in existence? And then in red, not even close. Let me read one or two others. Has quantum cosmology uh, explained the emergence of the universe or why it is here? Not even close. One more. Have the sciences explained why our universe seems to be fine-tuned to allow for the existence of life? Not even close. As you confront the the escape route that I've heard so many physicists say, well, our universe is fine tuned because there are just there just has to be trillions and maybe an infinite number of other little bubble universes out there that were clunky, stupid, you know, ineffective, yeah, sure. life forbidding universes. What do you say to those?
3: I say it's a good try, but it's unpersuasive. Mm-hmm. First, because there's absolutely no evidence that those other universes exist. Okay, and and second, to the extent that they are a part of of the fiction of current quantum cosmology, mm-hmm. they arise for internal reasons that have nothing to do with the characteristic procedures of science. After all, physicists were moved to declare that there are 10 to the 500th possible solutions to the um, string vacua problem in string theory mm-hmm. because they had no other way to deal with the embarrassing fact that the equations of string theory are not unique. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't provide a, a solution. The existence of a solution is unique, let alone stable, as... Uh, Many physicists have all along claimed a a set of solutions must be. And um, for that reason, they arise purely for internal reasons, something that every physicist who writes about this admits. For example, Leonard Susskind says, well, we don't have direct evidence of the impossible to have uh, anything like direct evidence, but the whole structure is coherent. It's beautiful. It's mathematically invigorating.
4: Hmm.
3: But you can say exactly the same thing about a house of cards, and I do. Mm. Uh, that is the characteristic of a house of cards. There's no contact with reality except the instability that causes it to collapse. Mm. A scientific theory, a, a profound scientific theory, cannot be built on this basis of internal coherence and consistency where things are postulated to exist for no better reason than the theory demands they exist. Mm. That's simply not a way to proceed. We, we, we need some direct contact with reality if anyone is, is going to give up his belief in a, a alternative version of reality. That's an obvious point. It's an elementary right. point. It's not the first time that physicists have, have taken this route. Look, he ended in the 1920s. Uh, quantum mechanics and special relativity proved incompatible, and uh, physicists, great minds like Paul Dirac, were forced to postulate such mechanisms as pair creation from a sea of possibilities. But the point about those speculations is that uh, simply within five, six, seven years, there was astonishing experimental confirmation of these ideas. Mm-hmm. Astonishing. Mm -hmm. Had there been no experimental confirmation during the 1930s, we would have regarded terror creation or annihilation operators in quantum mechanics as a dead end. Mm -hmm. In exactly the same way, we will regard the landscape of quantum possibilities, of cosmological possibilities as a dead end if we cannot reach any kind of experimental confirmation. Mm -hmm. And because of the way the theory is built and the assumptions that go into the theory, it is almost impossible to imagine experimental confirmation. But a third and obvious point, if a physicist tells you, uh, after reflecting on religious experience and religious beliefs, that in order to avoid an obvious inference from the fine-tuning of the fundamental constants to something like a Mm fine-tuner, he's going to postulate 10 to the 500th additional universes. We, the rest of us, are entitled to say this is a gross violation of Occam's Razor. It's unwieldy, it's Mm inelegant, and implausible because you're not so much much searching for a new idea as evading an old one. Mm -hmm. And that, to my mind, is unacceptable.
1: Right, and some of of those listening may not be familiar with Occam's Occam's Razor, razor. but it's mentioned about three or four times in the um, movie Contact, and that's where, of course, we're reminded that the simplest solution, all things being equal, the simplest solution is best. Parsimonious thought is at a premium and so uh, the, the the bloated ontology, I sometimes call it, of the multiverse, the, this multiple yeah. universe landscape
3: to, of the multiverse, the,
1: the landscape seems to be not only undetectable but itself um, really kind of like generated by a desire to, to uh, escape one kind of implication or at least. Oh, well, I
3: think that's absolutely true, and I think the the good physicists like Leonard Suss can admit this. Mm-hmm. And there's a quote I have in the book that if we cannot. Uh, defend the landscape if we cannot show that it really is a a plausible physical idea. He says we will be very hard pressed to answer ID critics. Well, I,
1: I've, uh, you know, been amazed by that. I, I think I became aware of that quote just a few months ago. You're listening to uh, David Berlinski on the phone with us uh, from Seattle, Washington, where he's on a, a coast-to-coast, I guess, or at least extensive tour. I guess you're going endless to a, the Endless the Endless. <laughs> well, your earlier um, interactions with intelligent design, I describe you, by the way, in Chapter 11 of Darwin Strikes Back, the, my book that came out about a year and, a, year and four months ago. Yeah. As— Uh, One of uh, Intelligent Design's unexpected allies, and in the sense that here you are, a graduate uh, PhD from Princeton University in philosophy, later known for as an historian of mathematics, uh, author of the book Tour of the Calculus, and uh, many other uh, great awards uh, I, I I describe you as a rhetorician par excellence because you have that amazing knack but uh you are described in the book as a secular Jew right and so the, I think you have offered at least on some occasions the the notion that you stand personally as a defeater or a disproof of the notion that every critic of macro-Darwinian macro-evolution is a fundamentalist.
3: I am a one-man multitude to the contrary.
1: (laughs) Okay. Uh, In other words, you have good, uh, uh, we we could say empirical or just, you know, commonsensical and logical reasons for
3: questioning
1: the adequacy of the neo-Darwinian paradigm. But
3: here's the point. It's not only me. I'm very prominently displayed Mm -hmm. chiefly because I have nothing to lose. Mm -hmm. I'm willing to take risks that other people are unwilling to take. Mm -hmm. And it's not to my credit. I Mm -hmm. simply have nothing to lose. What are they going to do to me? There's no tenure position I can be denied. I'm not applying for a professorship. There's nothing. Mm-hmm. And I have no money to lose either. (laughs) Hopefully this
1: broadcast will make you a few few bucks on
3: the sale of your the the devil. I've (laughs) taken a vow of poverty. It's fine by me. It's fine by me. But the point is, if you're in the same position as I am, you have a lot of correspondence and you speak to a lot of people. And I've got a lot of friends who prefer not to be named, believe it or not, Mm -hmm. at Harvard and MIT and other very, very good universities. (laughs) And uh, the views that I'm expressing... And I know this will come as something of a surprise. I'm not unknown within the biological establishment, mm. not at all. Mm. And many people have independently come to the same conclusion not mm. because they've read me because they're good biologists. Mm. They know. They know that they are uh, skating on very thin ice. Yep. They really do the shadows are lengthening to mix the metaphors.
1: Wow. Let me just ask you to comment, if you could. I mean, Michael Behe in his most recent book, "The Edge of Evolution." The Edge of Evolution. I thought it was a terrific read. So did I. Yeah. And, uh, and, and he and he seems to me to almost gently force Richard Dawkins to um, jar himself out of denial and say that there is clearly in the landscape that we we now have data, you know hard uh, you know data on the landscape. Are you
3: talking about physics or biology? I'm
1: talking about biology, uh-huh. the landscape of the DNA, the, the, the genomes of malaria and human you know, DNA, and so that we see that these mutations are breaking things. They're not making things. So it seems to me that the motor at the heart of this grand Darwinian theory, the motor mechanism of mutation selection is entering the state of, of extreme crisis or maybe even meltdown. Would you concur?
3: I don't like to use the words extreme crisis or meltdown because mm-hmm. so many biologists who are largely engaged in propaganda mm-hmm. uh, are prepared to to sit up and woof loudly to the contrary. Mm-hmm. But what I would say is that if you look at the literature, and I'm talking about the technical literature, not the popular literature right now. Mm-hmm. If you look at, it, for example, Michael Lynch's new book, The Architecture of the Genome, or you look at his research papers, and it's a first-rate mind, absolutely no question about it you will see that the underlying problems, as I would think of them, are being expressed from within the establishment, from within the establishment. Mm -hmm. And of course, they're being heavily disguised as open questions, and I suppose that's perfectly legitimate. I have no objection to offer at that. But what Lynch is arguing is not that mutations are inevitably harmful or deleterious, he's arguing a much more fundamental point is that we can make no sense of the emergence of a completely ordered biological structure if we simultaneously believe that at the level of the genome, the only thing controlling the behavior of the genome as it changes are roiling waves of probability which go back and forth but don't lead in any particular direction. Mm -hmm. Extremely interesting point. Mm -hmm. And of all people, Emil Zuckerkandl, Mm -hmm. Who is just uh, livid with indignation at the thought of intelligent design? in an in a odd way he concurs with his judgment he says we don't have any explanation for the emergence of higher order complexity on the basis of what we know of the genome mm. and he thinks of this as you know one of those minor little problems that sooner or later we'll solve but the admission I think is uh, quite striking I mentioned that in the book
1: mm. well, it goes you're li- across the board now. right you're listening to David Berlinsky uh, David Berlinsky the author of Devil's delusion, a new book from uh, Crown Forum. And we're going to be going on a little bit deeper into this book, and to the extraordinary um, controversy that has erupted around these topics, and of course, in the film, Expelled, No Intelligence Allowed, which uh, features David Berlinski and probably 30 other scholars uh, who are involved in this discussion. You're listening to Darwin or Design. We'll be right back with more of our interview with Dr. David Berlinski.
5: Dr. Woodward will be right back with more on Darwin or Design, brought to you each week through the support of the C.S. Lewis Society. You can partner financially with the C.S. Lewis Society to continue reaching minds and hearts of thousands through Darwin or Design when you log on to Apologetics.org. That's Apologetics.org or call
0: 727-642-8574. Welcome back to Darwin or Design on Tampa Bay's Christian Talk, AM 570 and 910 WTBN. Once again, here's the host of Darwin or Design, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome back to Darwin or Design. I'm on the phone today
1: with one of my more exciting interviews I've ever had in this program's history with Dr. David Berlinski. Uh, Dr. David Berlinski is featured in my book, Chapter 11 of, of Darwin Strikes Back, under the title um, Unexpected Allies. I feature him with all, along with many other physicists and chemists and And scholars from a wide diversity of fields who, without having any particular religious compunction or or driving motive, uh, come alongside and consider the theory of intelligent design as having a merit is having some uh, punch to it and so having some empirical basis. And so uh, we're delighted uh, to have on the uh, other end of the line in Seattle, Washington, Dr. David Berlinski, who has just uh, released this week. Is that right, uh, David Berlinski? April 1st. April 1st. Okay. Just fresh out. I just got my copy. I'm holding it in my hand. Very handsome cover. Of course, the title on this handsome book cover, The Devil's Delusion, and on the back, I'm flipping it over, and I see from the Chicago Tribune, the general comment, I hope it applies to this book, uh, I'm sure it will, uh, it says, David Berlinski plus any topic equals an extraordinary book. I like that. That's Oh, a, me too. Yeah, that's a literary edition uh, equation that we can all uh, cheer for. Uh, under the praise for the devil's delusion, we have a, a one a friend of this program. We've had him on, I think, twice at least, Michael Behe, the author of uh, Darwin's Black Box and Edge of Evolution. He says, uh, with high style and lighthearted disdain, Berlinski deflates the intellectual pretensions of the scientific atheist crowd. Maybe they can recite the periodic table by heart? but the secular Berlinsky shows that this doesn't get them very far in reasoning about much weightier matters. Uh, Dr. Berlinski, you're talking in this book, of course, about the issue, really, of metaphysics and the ability of, like, a scientific theory or a, a set of theories or even a scientific frame of mind to conflate up to or replace metaphysics, or, or at least a, a, route, extent, a
3: route to metaphysics. To a certain extent, when I discuss questions of cosmology, it's very much a matter of metaphysics. Mm-hmm. It's not my choice. It's what the physicists have uh, encouraged me mm-hmm. to discuss. But when I discuss issues about uh, evolutionary psychology, I don't really think we're dealing in metaphysics anymore. We're dealing with the, the flamboyant inadequacy of current speculations.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And I think a, a sharp distinction has to be drawn. Metaphysics is a better physics. I couldn't agree more. Mm-hmm. But not all issues of metaphysics. There is the, the, the simple glaring inadequacy of so much that passes as scientific discourse today. Mm.
1: What do you think allows that to go on with so little, um, you know, calling out and like, you know, um, accountability, I guess is the word.
3: It, it, there is a good deal of accountability. There is a good deal of calling out. I mean, it, it happens. It doesn't happen fast enough for the likes of me. It probably doesn't happen fast enough for you. Mm. But it does take place. Uh, if you go back just as recently as five years and consider the immense worldwide fascination with evolutionary psychology, there's a good deal of healthy laughter about it now. Mm. We don't really need evolutionary psychology, for example, to explain why men like blonde bombshells, mm-hmm. which is a subject I discuss in the book because it's based on a real research report. Mm.
1: Well, that now that gets me wanting to zero in on some of these key chapters more than ever. Uh I I am speaking in jest, of course. Uh your chapter Knights of Doubt. I mean, I, again, I haven't had a, the opportunity to go through the book yet. I just got it within the last 3 3 or 4 hours. What is Knights of Doubt all about?
3: It's about the the uh, inability uh, which of course I share. I'm not exempting myself from this mm-hmm. criticism. Mm-hmm. Um Inability expressed by philosophers, biologists, the entire intellectual group in society to find a coherent basis for a moral life. Mm -hmm. Um, We seem to have exhausted a great many possibilities. We've reached no uh, settled conclusions. We're unsure how to structure a society. Mm -hmm. And we have a nagging doubt that by withdrawing any form of... Transcendental authority, divine authority—we have committed ourselves to a very, very grievous human error. Mm. But for the life of me, and I think for the life of anybody else, nobody knows how to correct or repair that error.
2: Mm.
1: Well, uh, are you? Let me just ask you a couple of questions. I think maybe a typical listener to our program might pose: um, Are you open? As a secular Jew, who is um, affiliated in various uh, sundry ways with the intelligent design movement, but not necessarily a card-carrying member. But are you open to evidence that points to a transcendent source? Of course I'm open. How could
3: you be closed to
1: evidence? Okay, all. all right. Well, if as you look at it, I mean, would you see the the rootedness of Judeo Christianity, and I'm going to join Judaism and Christianity mm-hmm. uh, in this kind of complex of two systems that are so close. Of course, Christianity branching out from Judaism. Do you see the rootedness and the historical predictions? Let's say, made within Judeo Christianity an opportunity to test the truth claims of that tradition.
3: You mean, for example, if there's a biblical claim made?
1: Uh, yeah, uh, uh, that such and such nation will perish. And if we study, let's say, Joel says, you know, no, no, or Isaiah, and then, and then that, that nation uh, turns out is destroyed permanently. I mean. No,
3: no, I cannot, I cannot give my assent to those doctrines. At, uh, uh, oh, oh. A flat-out point of skepticism.
1: That's interesting. Uh, I, I guess that's where you and I would, you know, de- depart or, or you know, go sure. down different paths.
3: Sure, I'm, I'm yeah. willing to discuss it. But, yeah, but, yeah. Uh,
1: okay. Well, I mean, uh, if but if let, let me just pose it in terms of if any religious system makes a historical claim, and it appears to be supported by evidence, let's leave Judaism and Christianity out of it, if any religious system is making daring claims of the future, and then they are confirmed, would that system then, just in a more general principle sense, uh, have greater plausibility as it passes such falsification tests?
3: It depends on the level of specificity. Mm -hmm. To say that uh, a certain historical religious tradition has made the observation that men are born rotten, Mm -hmm. uh, or that uh, a lot is, is suffering death, uh, that's not quite specific enough for me to, uh, mm-hmm. to say that a religious tradition has, has received something like confirmation. Right.
1: The one that I present normally is the Daniel 9 uh, prophecy that 483 years after the issuing of a decree to rebuild Jerusalem... Which is historically rooted to 444, the Messiah, the Prince would be cut off, and and it does seem to jive well with the Judeo-Christian uh, claims. But I, but I, I am um, getting off the track here. But in general, I think we're in agreement at least with this notion that that uh, the statements of the flat-out denial of the plausibility of atheistic worldview that we hear spouted or, 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 you know, screamed from the rooftops by some of the more ardent Darwinian uh, defenders and, mm-hmm. or, or atheist defenders uh, lack plausibility when it goes into their scientific side. And I think that's your main point.
3: I think your- there's an enormous amount of inconsistency and hypocrisy in the mm-hmm. claims. Mm-hmm. Because, and I, I again, I have to say, I'm, I'm right there with everybody else. I'm not an exception to this rule. Mm-hmm. When it comes to examining their own beliefs and mm-hmm. the systems to which they give um, their assent and their credence,
2: mm-hmm.
3: uh, standards change radically. Mm-hmm.
1: What do you see as the chief uh, chink in the armor of Dawkins? I know Dawkins, I'm sure, is one of the, you know, your, even, your book even somewhat is modeled after Dawkins' title, The God Delusion, and yours is The Devil's Delusion.
3: Yeah, it's, made, it's based much more on the on the wonderful Shakespeare quote that I've included, he must have a long spoon that must sup with the devil. Okay, That's what prompted the title. Okay. Although I recognized in retrospect there might be some similarities. I don't reject that. It's probably an unconscious influence. Okay. I don't think Dawkins has a chink in his armor. I really don't, because mm-hmm. he has transcended um, ordinary the, the ordinary uh, critical ambit. He's become an international celebrity, and people like that don't have chinks in their armor. That is by a chink in the armor, if you mean by a chink in your armor, uh, a point of vulnerability for attack, mm-hmm. there is none. There is none. Could he is you, a permanent could... fixture on the celebrity circuit right now. Mm-hmm. People will continue to criticize him. Of course they will. Mm-hmm. But it will have no effect whatsoever.
1: That's fascinating. No. Uh, well, you know, the the, the the point that he makes uh, about the existence of God, I mean, his his like one-stop shopping plan, if I can put in those terms, is any God... Any potential creator of the universe and of life and of humanity uh, would be infinitely more complex uh, than the pr- products uh, that that creator made, and therefore it would need to have an explan- an evolutionary explanation itself.
3: Why I mean, is that so? Well, I'm not. I'm presenting. I know, I'm asking in, on behalf of Richard Dawkins' yeah. critics. Why yeah. is that so?
1: I, I well, I would chime in. Uh, I agree that that he's taking the, the definition. let's say, what we use is the definition God, the uncreated creator, and he's like saying who who created or who evolved the uncreated creator, so it becomes incoherent. It's
3: interesting that Richard Dawkins' entire argument was brilliantly anticipated by Aquinas in the Summa Theologica. I mean, there's nothing in Dawkins that Aquinas Mm -hmm. did not anticipate. Mm -hmm. And he drew the obvious conclusion from the infinite regress that Dawkins is suggesting. Mm -hmm. The conclusion is that God is a necessarily existing being, Mm -hmm. not a contingent being, and therefore, the kind of uh, questions and responses that you might mm-hmm. be able to trigger with respect to contingent beings simply don't apply. And I think this is the classic response of the theological tradition. Uh, unfortunately, it is a tradition that darkness has failed to interest himself mm-hmm. in.
1: Do you, do you see the, um, the movie that you p- appear in, The Expelled, Expelled yeah. uh, do you see that movie accomplishing an
3: educational function in the American culture today? It's so hard. To say you know, I don't know what kind of response it's it's going to get. It's been mm-hmm. very widely rejected by critics, mm-hmm. very widely rejected by critics. But that's just the first wave. Mm-hmm. So I, I have very little sense of how the film is going to do or whether it will perform any kind of educational mission. Mm-hmm. All I can say is let's wait a couple of weeks and see.
1: Yes. What do you What do you say of the critics when they when they just attack it as reprehensible and despicable in linking? Um, Darwinian ideas as not a sufficient, but at least a necessary contributing cause to the Nazi
3: regime. What do I say about the critics? What a bunch of boobs. (laughs) (laughs) And it's plainly an untouchable subject. Mm. It's plainly an untouchable subject because it's such a deeply painful subject. Mm. Nobody who's actively engaged in evolutionary biology wishes for a moment to suspect Mm -hmm. that Darwin could in any way be inculpated in Mm -hmm. the worst crime in human history. Mm. Nonetheless, when you examine the connection, Mm. and you ask yourself, is there a link between what Darwin wrote in 1859 and what the Nazis believed in, say, 1935, 6, 7, 8, 9? The answer that comes out of the historical record is the same as as the answer prompted by common sense. Yes, obviously there's a connection. These Mm. people were not reading the Gospels, after all.
1: (laughs) I mean, it's it's such a painful and poignant, and yet, uh, you know... Um, compelling point that I think that, you know, anybody who has questions about this needs to read Uh, Richard Weikart's book. uh, From Darwin to Hitler. From Darwin to Hitler. Hitler. We're going to be back for just a few more minutes. If if you can just hang on just a few more minutes, David Berlinski. We're talking to the author of The Devil's Delusion, but you're listening to
5: Darwin or Design. I'm Tom Woodward, your host. I'll be right back. Darwin or Design, brought to you each week through the support of the C.S. Lewis Society. You can partner financially with the C.S. Lewis Society to continue reaching minds and hearts of thousands through Darwin or Design when you log on to apologetics.org. That's apologetics.org. Or call 727
0: 642 8574. Welcome back to Darwin or Design on Tampa Bay's Christian Talk, AM 570 and 910 WTBN. Once again, here's the host of Darwin or Design, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome back to Darwin or
1: Design. We've been enjoying a terrific, exciting, and stimulating conversation with David Berlinski. David Berlinski is the author of the new book, The Devil's Delusion. And I'm ready, I'm primed to dive into this book. Just got it uh, overnighted to me from Seattle, Washington, where David Berlinski is sitting in a hotel room. And we're delighted to be speaking not only to the author of The Devil's Delusion, but the uh, one of the key figures interviewed in his uh, home in Paris, France, his apartment in Paris, France. Uh, in the book, excuse me, in the movie, Expelled: No Intelligence Allowed. Uh, David, tell us a little bit about the reviews thus far. I mean, I, I understand there are a number that are in the um, in cooking in the in the oven, so to speak. As, you it, mean of the
3: book or the movie uh, of, of your book. I haven't seen any any print reviews yet. Okay. I think it's a little too early. Yeah, oh, I,
1: that... I know the book just came out. Yeah. Literally, just about a week, a little over a week
3: ago. And tell you the truth, I'm like everyone else. I go to Amazon religiously to to, mm. to check what readers are saying. Some are good, and some are bad. They <laughs> seem to be split. Like five five star and one star, five star and one star. Yeah, and I've got to say, some of the one star reviews are, are perceptive and interesting. Uh, I read them very carefully. I don't mm-hmm. agree with them, but I, mm-hmm. I appreciate the fact that they, anybody took the time to write them.
1: Mm-hmm. In your writing and your speaking on the topic of Darwinian macro evolution, the large scale of, uh, evolutionary theory, you have uh, been known to be critical of the nature of the theory as uh, containing uh, a lot of uh, storytelling such as you know the the uh, stories of the evolution of the Land mammals into whale form. And of course, various uh, and sundry whale fossils, alleged links between land mammals and whales have been found. But I think that you've made a a point that there are a certain number of transitional stages or in between forms that would be necessary in that to to make that uh, string of intermediates a more compelling. Theory. I mean, could you just go into either that specific case or your perception of what uh, the Darwinian theory is? I
2: think it's a
3: very interesting case, a very interesting example, because it's certainly a case that strengthens a Darwinian point of view. You do have a transitional sequence that seems to point, and the origins of this sequence are currently under discussion in the literature. It's not clear. uh, It seems to be some sort of ungulate whether it's the size of a cow or the size of a hippopotamus, or much smaller, much larger, we don't really know. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but the intermediates have been found to the extent that there are six or seven intermediates now, the most recent Ambulocetus natans, which seems genuinely to have some characteristics of a land-dwelling animal and some characteristic of a sea, sea-, sea- seagoing animal. Mm-hmm. Even as far back as 1996, I said, this is a, a piece of important evidence in favor of the Darwinian point of view, that there are transitions and they have been found. They've been found roughly where they were supposed to be. But I, but I go on to say that the question that really is never asked, and it's the crucial scientific as opposed to the anecdotal question, is given the nature of the transition between a creature who lives on the land and a creature who lives in water, how many transitional steps or changes would you expect on the basis of current understanding of biological structures? How many and uh, I say, you know, I did some back of the envelopes calculations of no significance whatsoever. And I say, you could easily justify just about any number that pops into your head 5, 10, 50, 500, 500,000, 50,000. The point is not that the numbers are uh, right or wrong. The point is the question's not really asked. Mm -hmm. And it it seems an obvious question to ask of any kind of transitional theory, any kind of theory that bases itself on a continuous transformation between one form of life and another form of life, Mm -hmm. that it should give you not simply uh, an off-the-cuff guess, but a theoretically determined guess about what you should expect Mm -hmm. in terms of the number of changes. If you knew the number of changes, the number of expected changes, you could compare it to the fossil record. Let's say, just for the sake of argument, 50,000 changes are needed to take a Chevrolet and turn it into a submarine, let's, let's say, mm-hmm. and you only found six of those 50,000 changes, what conclusions might you draw about the plausibility of the theory? If there are 50,000 changes and you found 49,000, one conclusion might suggest itself. If there are 50,000 changes and you found six, another conclusion might suggest itself. Mm-hmm. If there are only 10 changes required to change a Chevrolet into a submarine, that requires a great deal of explanation about how the changes are all coordinated. And those those 10 changes must be massively coordinating Mm -hmm. in dominating, uh, arranging a whole variety of other changes. (coughs) Excuse me. So everywhere you you turn in this theory, there are open questions. It's nothing wrong with open questions. The point is they're never asked and still less are they ever answered. (coughs) And that's what I have to say about that. Okay. Well, that
1: is very, very appropriate, you know, uh, point that you bring out is that some of these questions that seem to raise themselves in ordinary thought and just considering uh, a fairly you know ambitious theory that nature would have to um you know, really perform quite a few amazing operations to move, let's say, the, the nasal passage from the front of a typical land-dwelling mammal all the way up to the top of the head to, to, to form the blowhole. And, of course, which, uh, from what I understand about whales, implies or requires the penetration of that uh, air passage right through the esophagus. It's called mu- mutual pre- penetration structure. And you know, and then maybe another, you know, a couple hundred other structures, which you've talked about on the the wonderful um, DVD, the incorrigible David Berlinski.
3: Yeah, there's no question that mm-hmm. it could have taken place by Darwinian means. Stress on could have taken place, but for critics such as me, something more is needed. And I think any anybody with a serious background in science, it's not enough to say it could have taken place. We want some numbers attached to this. Mm-hmm. First step. Mm-hmm. What's the first step in, in, in getting beyond the anecdotal.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: I don't think it's unreasonable to ask for a number.
1: Yeah, no, I don't think it's unreasonable to ask uh, for a number in a theory that uh, says that so much can be happening in redesign of systems without any intelligence playing a role. Because uh, or
3: something else. Yeah. Or something else. We we must never blind ourselves to the possibility that a completely different set of constraints may be at work.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: You know, for all that I know, those constraints. Limiting the space of possibilities, drastically uh, circumscribing that space, or influencing its topology for that matter, Mm -hmm. may be entirely chemical in nature. Mm -hmm. It's it's an exciting idea. I see no evidence that that is so, but it could be so. We just don't know.
1: Well, I want to thank you for taking out you know, nearly forty five or fifty minutes of your time uh, and perhaps de- delaying your lunch wherever you
3: are out there yeah I ate before the show don 't worry
1: okay very good well, uh, I can tell everybody that this is a regular listener to this program that we rarely have an opportunity to interview such a, an important intellectual figure in the world of theoretical I'm gonna
3: st- I'm gonna get off before you embarrass.
1: Okay, me. thank you, David Berlinski. My pleasure. I appreciate it so much. Best to you in the sales of your book. Thanks, bro. Bye bye. Okay, bye bye. Well,
5: Bill Carl, that was another uh, barn burner. Oh, oh my goodness! <laughs> I like him best of all. Yeah. Well, David, I like Doctor Ber- Silky the best before, but <laughs> sorry, Doctor Silky, you're done in my book. It's all about David Berlinski. Well, David Berlinski has been called
1: um, the gadfly on oh, the darwinian rump in other words he, he he bites he he stings and he's not one of
5: us in the sense of being your typical you know biblical christian well i think one of the things that is so fascinating about what we've heard today is it's coming from somebody who is so well versed in philosophy
4: mm-hmm.
5: and uh, somebody who's rooted in the scientific community say well of course he's a philosopher mm-hmm. but then at A point in life, he made a transition to hard science as a mathematician. Mathematics, yeah. And so he comes at it from statistics and numbers and probability, too. Mm. And from both approaches, is able to make a a very fine argument. And, you know, he is recognized, David Berlinski is recognized
1: worldwide as one of the premier, perhaps the finest historian of mathematical physics in the world today. I mean, his book, uh, A, A Tour of the Calculus, is considered the... Most important book ever written on how on the development of the theory of calculus, and in his book uh, the uh, advent of the algorithm, you know, award-winning book. His book uh, I haven't even mentioned Newton's gift, dealing with the whole story of Newtonian physics, uh, and I could name you know his his deniable Darwin, which when he wrote the deniable Darwin. You know, in commentary, which is not a Christian, you know, oriented magazine right. published by the American Jewish Committee commentary got such a wave of angry letters, including from Dawkins himself and some of the top biologists in the United States. He they had to devote 30 pages just to publishing the letters, and many of them were congratulatory. I mean, many of the fellow um, you know, thinkers along the lines of intelligent design said this is a major breakthrough that you'd be willing, to, you, that commentary would have the courage to publish the critique of, of Darwinian macroevolution by David Berlinski. And so he had to take 30 pages, in a, in the, in the two months later, in another issue,
5: just to, to print the, the letters and to reply. To answer his critics. To answer all of his critics. Well, I think there's a couple of things that commend him. One is that he is a skeptic of, of things of faith as well. I, I thought that, you know, for him to say, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm not buying the Judeo-Christian mm-hmm. line was was actually a commendation in, in this particular argument. And the other thing that is was... Stood out to me as his comfort in his own skin, mm-hmm. whereas Dawkins almost condemns himself. His chink in the armor, so to speak, mm-hmm. is his he's formed such an outrage that he's formed a whole morality Mm-hmm. Based as in a reaction against mm-hmm. morality, and this guy is a uh, hundred and eighty degrees from that. Well, and in, in a way, the devil's
1: delusion. I mean, I, I've just skimmed here and there. I've been actually kind of on the on the slide. It's killing you. You, skimming, you haven't been able to read it, isn't it? Uh, it's killing me. But but, <laughs> I, but I have been skimming the book uh, book even as we were in our conversation. Just you know, a word here, a paragraph there. But what he, this is a man who's in a search. He's in a search for truth, and he acknowledges the power of the scientific enterprise to gather truth in a certain constrained in a certain limited way. but he's showing that to think that the scientific worldview is going to somehow you know rear its head and move in and replace effectively replace the religious worldview is is to deny reality. it's, it's basically to to look at something uh, that's an orange and say, okay, this orange can now run for president. No, an orange suits its own purpose, but an orange can never, you know, be a candidate for president. You need a human being. Okay, so it's almost like taking science, which has its place, and trying to push it to a whole realm of function, a kind of a set of, of tasks that it's not equipped to do. And uh, and I can't wait again, as to, as I said in, earlier in our interview, to give it a full read and then come back and maybe we can have him, you know, do a follow-up interview, When the Dust Settles. But I do want to, if you're listening to uh, Darwin or Design, perhaps even for the first time we do, uh, and welcome you to make this a regular habit. Uh, We're giving information on apologetics, uh, specifically science is our main thrust. That's our beat. That's our uh, emphasis. But we also go into other areas, such as the writings of C.S. Lewis himself. The C.S. Lewis Society supports this broadcast each week. If you're interested in having me come and speak to your church or to your civic group, to your Um, even school, maybe even a college class, just give me a contact. I can always be reached uh, at uh, the C.S. Lewis Society website, and the word is information. You can always reach us, uh, email is information, spell out the whole word, at apologetics.org. If you're interested in um, maybe coming alongside and suggesting a, a person to be interviewed, we're actually looking for Darwinian teachers, biologists, anybody who's on the other side of the fence. We'd love to have more people uh, come alongside. We had a, a Darwinian biologist who wrote a book on evolution just come uh, and be our guest a few weeks ago, and we hope to have a revisit with him. And so uh, you may also maybe have an idea some of some other topic you'd like us to tackle. We'd even be glad to hear from you on that. I do want to say that uh, in the coming weeks, we have a lineup of terrific Interviews Really terrific. One of them is an author of um, two books, Billions of Missing Links and What Darwin Didn't Know. His name is Jeffrey Simmons. He's a medical doctor out on the West Coast, not too far from uh, where David Berlinski was today as uh, we were interviewing him. Well, we want to just conclude the, the broadcast as we wind up this week by saying that um, the m- reason uh, for our broadcast is to make known not only that there are chinks in the armor of Darwinian faith but there is a basis for knowing the creator of dna creating or creator of your dna your mind your heart um who you can know him personally and he made himself known personally by taking human nature upon himself the god of the universe penetrating humanity becoming one of us in the person of christ and christ of course um showed his love showed his commitment to you and me by putting his life on the line, by taking our sin, by paying for it, by rising again, and by um, showing himself alive to his disciples. And so uh, we're dealing with a proof that goes beyond science into the realm of eyewitness history, and that's what it's all about. And thank you for joining us on Darwin or Design. I'm Tom Woodward. See you next week.